Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast takes a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks, a short flyover summary of the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Mormon, Chapter 4 Well, while the previous chapter opened with some semblance of hope after a Nephite victory and an ensuing ten-year period of peace, this chapter begins with the Nephites having forsaken the Lord in their desire to enact vengeance upon the Lamanites and to enter into an offensive campaign against them, attacking them in their own lands. So as we read in the previous chapter, Mormon utterly refused to lead the people in this campaign, and he was instructed by the Lord to stand before them as an idle witness that what they were doing was wrong. So that's the context as we begin Mormon chapter 4, and so this chapter is an account of this offensive that is mounted by the Nephites as again they attack the Lamanites in their own land and do so without Mormon's leadership and without the support of the Lord himself. This chapter really marks the beginning of the end then. There's some ebb and flow in the battles that take place between the Nephites and Lamanites, uh, both sides experiencing victory, but on the part of the Nephites it's temporary victory. We can see in verse 18 that from this time forth the Nephites did gain no power over the Lamanites, but began to be swept off by them even as a dew before the sun. This is yet one more expression that adds to our understanding of the spiritual state of the Nephites, having learned in Mormon chapter 2 that the day of grace had passed for them, then in chapter 3 that they had forfeited their opportunity to repent, even when, as instructed by the Lord during this ten-year period of peace, Mormon offered repentance and baptism to the people. And then now we're being told that from this time forward, the Lamanites will have ultimate power over the Nephites and they'll be swept off by them, even as a dew before the sun. And so just as the judgment that Mormon spoke of in the previous chapter that is inevitable for all of us, the destruction of the Nephites, which has been prophesied by many prophets prior to the Book of Mormon, including the Savior himself, will meet their ultimate destruction in the next few chapters. That, too, at this point, has become inevitable. Mormon chapter 4, then, contains 23 verses, and it's all storytelling narrative relating this tale of the offensive war that the Nephites decided to wage upon the Lamanites. There's commentary, as I mentioned a moment ago in verse 18, that tells us how things will be from this time forward. And then in the very final verse, Mormon will remind us of his stewardship over the records telling us that since the Lamanites are about to overthrow the land, he should take up all the records that Amron had hidden. Remember that earlier his instruction was to take only the plates of Nephi. The first section of this chapter can be seen in verses 1-5, through where this very unfortunate Nephite invasion into Lamanite lands begins. So they invade into the land southward against Mormon's direction, 
And as they do so, we find that they're driven back into the land of desolation. And in this offensive campaign, they end up losing the city of desolation. And so they have to flee to Tiankum. So this thing that Mormon advised them against did not end well. In verses 6 through 9, we find that the Nephites are not secure in Tiankum, but the Lamanites come against them there. Uh, The Nephites do defeat them at this point, and they are successful in driving the Lamanites out of desolation as well. So they ultimately reclaim the city of desolation. However, um, in verses 10 through 13, we find that this victory is very short-lived, and the Lamanites once again retake the city of desolation. At this point, Mormon also pauses to discuss the state of wickedness of the Nephites and says that this wickedness that we're seeing now exceeds all other eras. This is when Mormon, in verse 11, relates this memorable but terrible verse. When he says, It is impossible for the tongue to describe or for man to write a perfect description of the horrible scene of blood and carnage which is among the people. And then in verse 12, he goes on to say that never had there been so great wickedness among all the children of Lehi. Now things go from bad to worse, as we see how this offensive campaign has ended. The Nephites have lost the city of desolation. They've come back into Teancum again, and this time they are driven from Teancum as well. So they have lost both of these important strongholds. And then we discover this graphic scene in verse 14, where the Lamanites sacrifice women and children to idols. Now, in verses 15 and 16, we'll discover that there is some reclaiming of Nephite lands. In this period, we find that the Nephites came against the Lamanites with exceedingly great anger, and they did beat the Lamanites and drove them out of their lands. Once again, however, this victory is short-lived, and we find in verses 17 through 22 that the Lamanites really from this point forward, begin their final offensive. And they take desolation entirely, and they take the city of Boaz, which is a new city that we've not heard of previously. And once again, they sacrifice women and children to idols. And then, generally speaking, they drive the Nephites from their towns and villages. So this is how the chapter ends. This is how things turn out for the Nephites as they forsake the Lord and forsake Mormon's leadership. Then, again, in the final verse in 23, Mormon will tell us that in light of the pending destruction and takeover of the entire land northward, as it seems, and certainly uh, where the hill Shim was situated, it was necessary for him to retrieve all the records from that hill. Well, with that introduction and overview in place, let's return now to verse 1 for a reading. Again, as we start verse 1, let's remember that these Nephites are beginning a campaign of vengeance and are invading Lamanite cities, and so they have lost the Lord's support and Mormon's leadership. Verse 1, And now it came to pass that in the 363rd year, the Nephites did go up with their armies to battle against the Lamanites, out of the land of desolation. They're no longer defending desolation. They're moving to the south and invading Lamanite land. Ogden and Skinner have said, The land desolation is rendered in Hebrew Eretz Horbah, the latter word having the same root word as Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai, which means destroyed, dry parched land, ruins, deserted or depopulated wasteland. There's a reference in the book of Isaiah to waste cities in Isaiah chapter 61 and also in Jeremiah chapter 41 that are similar concepts. Verse 2. 
And it came to pass that the armies of the Nephites were driven back again to the land of desolation. So they were unsuccessful as they tried to invade Lamanite lands, and from this point forward, they will be far too busy defending their own lands to ever try such an offensive war again. And while they were yet weary, so just having returned to desolation in defeat, a fresh army of the Lamanites did come upon them, and they had a sore battle, insomuch that the Lamanites did take possession of the city desolation, and did slay many of the Nephites and did take many prisoners. And the remainder did flee and join the inhabitants of the city Teancum. Now the city Teancum lay in the borders by the seashore, and it was also near the city Desolation. So we can see that the Nephites are paying dearly for this campaign of vengeance that they entered into that grew out of their boasting and their own strength. And so now they find themselves in the city Teancum, and their hope, of course, is that they can defend this place against the Lamanites. Thomas Arvaleta has given us this insight into the city of Teancum. In the waning years of Nephite civilization, around A.D. 363 to A.D. 325, the city Teancum, a coastal community near the city Desolation, was the setting for tragedy as Nephites unsuccessfully gathered there for safety from an invading Lamanite army. After the city fell, Lamanite soldiers offered Nephite women and children as sacrifices unto their idol gods. We'll read of that in a moment. The city was named after Teancum, a famous Nephite general who faithfully served with Captain Moroni during the Lamanite-Nephite Wars, uh, particularly as they're recorded in Alma chapters 50 through 53. Teancum was fearless in battle and on two occasions subtly stole into Lamanite camps to slay their leaders, which eventually took his life. Teancum fought valiantly for his country and was a true friend of liberty. And that's the way that Mormon himself described Teancum in Alma chapter 62 verse 37. Now, lest we miss this point, verse 4 tells us, and it was because the armies of the Nephites went up into the Lamanites that they began to be smitten. For were it not for that, the Lamanites could have had no power over them. So as Mormon stands as an idle witness to what's unfolding, all he can do in this case is to write about it. Under his leadership, they could have continued to have defended the land of desolation, The treaty that was entered into at the end of Mormon chapter 2 could have held. They only needed to defend the narrow neck of land that led into the land northward. And verse 4 is making it very clear that the Lamanites could have had no power over them under those circumstances. Then they were in a position to repent and be baptized. Mormon had offered that to them at the beginning of the previous chapter. But they forfeited all of that. They became intoxicated with the prospect of their own strength and with the idea of enacting vengeance upon the Lamanites. And so now they find the Lamanites in their own land in violation of that treaty, and things now will never be the same. Verse 5, But behold, the judgments of God will overtake the wicked, and it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. For it is the wicked that stir up the hearts of the children of men unto bloodshed. Well, to this, Ogden and Skinner write, History attests the truth contained in this verse. It is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. For example, God anciently used the Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, Lamanites, and others to afflict and punish his wayward children as instruments in his hands to inflict the wrath decreed for rebellion and wickedness. So great insight there from Ogden and Skinner. And we need not think that when the Lord used the Persians, Greeks, Romans, Babylonians, Assyrians, etc., and Lamanites in this case, as instruments in the hands of the Lord, 
uh, to inflict such wrath uh, upon his people, that these are instruments that are aligned with God's will. They don't deserve that much credit. Isaiah made that very clear with respect to the king of Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 19, when he said, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. So the Assyrian king is the Lord's instrument in this case. He says, I will send him, meaning the king of Assyria against Israel, against an hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So we're reading here of the mechanics, really, of the scattering of Israel, that the king of Assyria will be the means by which the northern kingdom will be destroyed and the ten tribes therein will be scattered. Notice this graphic language. A couple chapters back, Mormon talked about how the bodies of the Nephites were heaped up as dung upon the earth. And here Isaiah is saying that these Israelites at the hand of the Assyrian king will be treaded down like the mire of the streets. Now, Isaiah continues in verse 7 in Isaiah chapter 10. Again, we're talking about the way in which these um, enemy kingdoms can be an instrument in the Lord's hands. He says, Howbeit he meaneth not so. So he's saying that the king of Assyria is not aligned in his attention, in his intentions with God. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. So as far as the king of Assyria is concerned, it's conquest that's on his mind. It's not to enact the will of the Lord. So that's a very important point to make here as, uh, as we look at the way in which uh, Ogden and Skinner are saying that these enemy kingdoms, such as the Lamanites in this case, are used as instruments in the hands of God to inflict wrath. Isaiah continues by saying, For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kalno as Carchemis? Is not Hamath as Arpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? In other words, the Assyrian king is saying, Are not all of these uh, foreign lands already just as good as mine? As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not have, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, to do so to Jerusalem and her idols? So this is what the king of Assyria intends to do. But then the Lord clarifies, or Isaiah clarifies by saying, just at the point when the king of Assyria says, by the strength of my hand have I done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent. He says in verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as if the staff would lift up itself as if it were no wood. So again, the king of Assyria and other kingdoms, like the Lamanites in this case, are being used as an instrument, but make no mistake, they don't have uh, hearts that are aligned with gods in this enterprise. Daniel Ludlow has written, Once the Nephite soldiers started to wage offensive war, they soon became so bloodthirsty they were concerned only with the taking of human life. The leaders of this dispensation have also warned against the dangers of starting an offensive war. President Charles W. Penrose has said, We Latter-day Saints must watch ourselves and not give way to passion and desire to shed blood and to destroy, for that is the power of the evil one. We do not want to imitate any nation that is bent on a policy of destruction, to break down and trample underfoot where they cannot dominate. If we have that desire, it is the spirit of the wicked one. 
Well, now in verses 6 through 9, we'll read of a momentary victory on the part of the Nephites as the Lamanites come in to attack Teancum. And it came to pass that the Lamanites did make preparations to come against the city of Teancum. And it came to pass in the 364th year, the Lamanites did come against the city Teancum, that they might take possession of the city Teancum also, remembering again that they have taken possession of the city of Desolation at this point. And it came to pass that they were repulsed and driven back by the Nephites. And when the Nephites saw that they had driven the Lamanites, they did again boast of their own strength. So we read that phrase in uh, chapter 3. They're doing it again here, and we can see the folly of that when the Nephites are actually in such peril. But they again boast of their own strength, and they went forth in their own might and took possession again of the city desolation. So in this case, boasting is most certainly a symptom of a spiritual sickness, we might say. Boasting was used in an entirely different way uh, in Alma chapter 26. Bruce Armakonke spoke of this by saying, There's a difference between boasting after the manner of the world and glorying in the Lord. That's when Ammon was boasting in that way. One is a form of self-righteous pride, the other a song of praise and thanksgiving to that holy being whose mercy endureth forever. Now, colloquially today, I would add that we only use the word boast in the former context. So what Ammon was really doing was glorying in the Lord, and that's the way that the chapter summary casts that when we come to Alma chapter 26. Contrast the boasting of the Nephite soldiers in Mormon chapter 4 with that of Ammon, who said, Yea, I know that I am nothing, as to my strength I am weak. Therefore I will not boast of myself, but I will boast of my God, for in his strength I can do all things. So a sharp contrast, of course, to what's happening here with these depraved and spiritually weak Nephites. Verse 9, And now all these things had been done, and there had been thousands slain on both sides, both the Nephites and the Lamanites. So this is a victory for the, for the Nephites. They boast in that victory. But now we find that in verses 10 through 13, the Lamanites retake desolation. Ultimately, we will see that they retake Teancum as well. Verse 10, And it came to pass that the 360 and sixth year had passed away, and the Lamanites came again upon the Nephites to battle. And yet the Nephites repented not of the evil they had done, but persisted in their wickedness continually. And it is impossible for the tongue to describe, or for man to write a perfect description of the horrible scene of blood and carnage which was among the people, both of the Nephites and of the Lamanites. And every heart was hardened so that they delighted in the shedding of blood continually. So Mormon is saying this categorically without exceptions. Of course, Moroni was with him. He uh, did not have a heart so hardened. Uh, so there, there must have still been a, a small handful if uh, perhaps it was only Mormon and Moroni themselves that didn't have hard hearts during this time. Verse 12, And there never had been so great wickedness among all the children of Lehi, nor even among all the house of Israel, according to the words of the Lord, as was among his people. Uh, So there have only been a few statements like this. There was a statement, I think, in Alma chapter 28, that it was the worst war that had ever been fought since the time of Lehi. Then that happens again later in the book of Alma, that that statement is made. And here, as to the state of wickedness among the people, this is the lowest point of all, according to Mormon. Verse 13, And it came to pass that the Lamanites did take possession of the city desolation, and this because their number did exceed the number of the Nephites. Notice it's all about numbers here. It has nothing to do with anyone being strengthened by the Lord. Verse 14, 
and they did also march forth against the city Teancum. So now the Nephites have lost that ground as well. And again, to return to Mormon's earlier comment, all of this is because they chose to go against the Lamanites in their own land. If they would not have done this, uh, the story would have ended very differently. So verse 14, again, they did also march forth against the city Teancum, and did drive the inhabitants forth out of her, and did take many prisoners, both women and children, and did offer them up as sacrifices unto their idol gods. Now, we've never read of that before in the Book of Mormon. We've read of Lamanites taking women and children uh, as prisoners. And we've read in the past, of course, with Captain Moroni, that there were exchanges of prisoners between both warring sides. Here, however, these prisoners are actually being offered up as sacrifices unto their idol gods. It's painful to visualize and painful to read, and this same thing will happen again in another few verses. So after this, the Lamanites actually do reclaim their lands and have one more momentary victory in verses 15 and 16. And it came to pass that in the 367th year, the Nephites being angry because the Lamanites had sacrificed their women and their children, that they did go against the Lamanites with exceedingly great anger, insomuch that they did beat again the Lamanites and drive them out of their lands. So they are emboldened by a sense of cause, by a sense of indignation, and in this time they do reclaim their lands. Bruce R. McConkie has given us the following insight in his book, The Promised Messiah, as we think about the state of depravity that would lead a group of people to sacrifice women and children to idols. He says, The most horrifying and revolting perversion of the divine sacrificial system has been human sacrifice, the shedding of mortal blood by mortal man on one religious pretext or another. As Amulek said, there is not any man that can sacrifice his own blood which will atone for the sins of another. That's out of Alma chapter 34, verse 11. Nor is God appeased, nor are the forces of nature controlled by the most sincere slaying of the purest virgins or others. Such acts are the basest form of false worship. Satan has such great hold on the hearts of men that he has prevailed upon them to sacrifice each other by the thousands in the name of religion. So after this victory, if we can even call it that, the Nephites have reclaimed their lands, and in verse 16 we find, and the Lamanites did not come again against the Nephites until the 375th year. Now in verses 17 through 22, really we'll read of the final offensive of the Lamanites. This is how things will be from here on out, really. They're going to be driving the Nephites from before them. Verse 17, And in this year they did come down against the Nephites with all their powers, and they were not numbered because of the greatness of their number. And from this time forth did the Nephites gain no power over the Lamanites. So there's no more give and take, there's no more significant ebb and flow in these battles. But they began to be swept off by them even as a dew before the sun. As to this metaphor, Hugh Nibley has said, A very powerful expression, there's nothing left. Everything is swept away as the dew before the sun, combing the land. It wasn't just a spot engagement here and there that would lead to a conference between the rulers or something like that. No, it was a total thing. The most violent element of war, like a violent natural force, like a plague sweeping a nation, appears. When freed from all conventional restrictions, it breaks loose with all its natural force. It is a natural phenomenon. There are no more artificial or other restraints. War is much nearer to real nature in absolutes. 
that coincides with comments that we read a couple chapters back about the, the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics and the natural state of decay. This is the path of least resistance when it comes to war as well. And now, of course, the Nephites are unable to resist from this point forward. Verse 19, And it came to pass that the Lamanites did come down against the city desolation, and there was an exceedingly sore battle fought in the land desolation in which they did beat the Nephites. So once again, they are battling over possession of desolation because the Nephites had reclaimed that. So they did have a chance at coming back to the place that they were at when they came to the end of Mormon chapter 2. But uh, this is a different time. This is a darker time uh, even than that time, and the Nephites' prospects of uh, maintaining desolation have truly ended. Verse 20, And they fled again from before them, and they came to the city Boaz. So this time they don't go to Teancum. We're not sure why. Maybe at this point Teancum was just in ruins, and it didn't make sense for them to try to um, stop in that city and fortify it against the Lamanite attack, or perhaps the Lamanite attack was moving too fast. But in any event, they come to the city Boaz, and there they did stand against the Lamanites with exceeding boldness, insomuch that the Lamanites did not beat them until they had come again the second time. Verse 21, And when they had come the second time, the Nephites were driven and slaughtered with an exceedingly great slaughter. Their women and their children were again sacrificed unto idols. So a momentary victory in Boaz, but then in the second attack, the Nephites are absolutely overwhelmed. Ogden and Skinner write, These verses describe sickening scenes of violence, horror, and human sacrifice. Every heart was hardened and delighted in the shedding of blood continually. The incomprehensible practice of human sacrifice recalls scenes from Old Testament history. One example was Molech, who was a fire god, the abomination of the children of Ammon, as it said in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 7. He was worshipped by the sacrifice and burning of children. Uh, that was also recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and 2 Chronicles 28. The Aztecs, who inhabited Teotihuacan during the later centuries, also had some of these abominable habits. The first mention of human sacrifice in the Book of Mormon is A.D. 366, When the Spaniards arrived in Mexico City Valley in A.D. 1519, they observed the diabolical practices of human sacrifice by the Aztecs. Bernal Diaz, a soldier in the army of Cortes, wrote, When they sacrifice a wretched Indian, they saw open the chest with stone knives and hastened to tear out the palpitating heart and blood and offer it to their idols, in whose name the sacrifice is made. They then cut off the thighs, arms, and head and eat the former at feasts and banquets and the head they hang upon some beams, and the body of the man's sacrifice is not eaten, but given to fierce animals. And John Sorensen noted, The scale of the human sacrifices is hard to grasp. During one week shortly before the Spaniards arrived, 70,000 victims were reportedly slain on the altars. Well, that is admittedly very difficult to read, and perhaps I should apologize for including that account. Uh, It certainly fills us with a, a sick dread that helps us to see what it was that Mormon was experiencing during this time and the state of depravity that people naturally go to at this point in Nephite history and, of course, in other points in history as well. Verse 22, And it came to pass that the Nephites did again flee from before them, taking all the inhabitants with them, both in towns and villages. So that's the end of the storytelling narrative in this chapter, a graphic scene, of course, of terrible tragedy, 
These will be the prevailing conditions as we move into Mormon chapter 5. However, in this very final verse in the chapter, Mormon will refer to the records. And this is something that we would naturally wonder if we're thinking about this at this point. If, if the Nephites are now being driven by the Lamanites in this manner, then it would suggest that the place where Amaron hid the records is no longer safe. So Mormon needs to retrieve these and take them to a place of safety. So verse 23 speaks to this. It says, And now I, Mormon, seeing that the Lamanites were about to overthrow the land, therefore I did go to the hill Shim and did take up all the records which Amaron had hid up unto the Lord. William Barrett, in his book Teachings on the Book of Mormon, has written, Seeing that the Lamanites were about to overthrow the land, Mormon went to the hill Shim and removed from it all of the sacred records which Amaron had hid up unto the Lord. Sometime later under commandment from God, Mormon began to make an abridgment from those records which work was near completion and yet unfinished by the time of his death. And of course, we'll come to a full understanding of that when we come to Mormon chapter 8 and discover that Moroni is uh, tasked with finishing Mormon's record. As a final piece of commentary, as we come to the end of this chapter, this is from the Book of Mormon Institute manual, and it's a brief overview of the movements of the plates. It says, Amaron told Mormon to take the large plates of Nephi from the hill Shim and add to them. We read that at the very beginning of the Book of Mormon. Mormon was to leave the rest of the plates, and that would be the plates of brass, the small plates of Nephi, and of course the plates of ether, in the hill Shim. Uh, We read of all this in Mormon chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Mormon removed the large plates. He wrote a full account of the activities of his people on them and used a selected portion of them to create his own condensed and abridged history of his people. Uh, We read of that in Mormon chapter 2, verse 18. Later, Mormon returned to the hill Shim, which is this episode that we've just read, and removed all of the plates, the plates of brass, the small plates of Nephi, the plates of ether, and all other plates, of which there may have been a considerable amount, from the hill. Fearing that the Lamanites might destroy the records, Mormon hid the plates again, except his abridgment and the small plates of Nephi in the hill Cumorah. These gold plates Mormon gave to his son Moroni. So we'll read of this in Mormon chapter 6, and again the distinction that's being made here is that it is only Mormon's abridgment and the small plates of Nephi that are given to Moroni on this occasion. The rest of those plates are hidden. There's one detail I would add, though, that doesn't seem to be accounted for here, which is that Moroni did obtain the, the 24 Jaredite plates because he abridged them, of course, into what we have today as the Book of Ether. Well, as we look forward to Mormon chapter 5, we will find that the fighting does continue. And interestingly, Mormon does decide to resume as the leader of these desperate but unrepentant Nephite armies. In chapter 5, he will also speak to future readers once again before the final piece of narrative that we will read in Mormon chapter 6 that leads to the uh, entire downfall of the Nephite civilization at Cumorah. So all of that is to come. For now, this brings us to the end of Mormon chapter 4. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This podcast has recently reached 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media and to write a review on iTunes, 
you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners and help them in their experience with the Come Follow Me curriculum. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual, Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, and the revised edition of Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of scripture, as well as general conference addresses that come to mind, also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text, a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, Jesus the Christ. I offer my witness that His attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know Him better. So, have a wonderful day, keep in touch, and thank you for listening.